I couldn't resist. I know that's an Easter video, but I love it. <laughs> we're, uh, we're continuing in our series called Truish this morning, and, uh, and that's where we're, we're looking at things that people believe that are partially true, uh, or maybe they're true, but they're just not the full truth. And I've been in youth ministry for 17 years, and I have two kids of my own, so I know firsthand that kids are the champions of true-ish. Um, and, and that's actually why I, I showed the video. It's like, okay, kind of, <laughs> you know, like that's close, I suppose. Um, and they're, they're, they're so good. Kids are so good at taking something that's true and embellishing it so much that it barely resembles truth at all by the time that they're done. Um, and kids aren't the only ones that do it, but kids are so innocent that it's like easier to see through it when kids do it than when adults do it. Um, like, I, I want to give you some examples of this. Every year, every year we take a, a group of high school students to CIY Move uh, in Michigan. We actually just got back yesterday, so if I uh, randomly just fall asleep in the middle of preaching, that's why. Uh, so every year we take these kids up to Michigan, up to CIY Move, and, uh, and every year we, we get to spend an afternoon on the beach, on a beach on the west side of the, of the state of Michigan, right on Lake Michigan. Um, and if you've ever been to a beach uh, at, at one of the Great Lakes... Um, you, you know that it's just, it's gorgeous. There's, there's sand everywhere as far as the eye can see. There's the water. There's no, there's no like rocks and stuff to deal with in the water. There's just, just sand all the way out and the water is, is cold, real cold and, but, but crisp and clean and, and it's wonderful to swim in. Um, and, and it's almost, it's almost like looking out over the ocean, but it's better because it's freshwater. And so, uh, it's just, it's, it's a phenomenal experience. And so one year, it wasn't this year, one year at CIY, I overheard this conversation between two students. One student says, we get to the beach, one student goes, whoa, look at all that sand. I've never seen so much sand in my life before, which is true. I promise you, if you've not been out of the state of Illinois, you've never seen so much sand in your life before. So that's true. Then another, then another student says, yeah, years ago, they sent trucks to California and brought all that sand in from the ocean to make this beach. And I'm like, I don't even know what to say to this. Like, I'm, like, I'm driving. It was in the van at the time, so I'm trying not to like look too like too long, so we don't just crash. But ish, I guess. Like, true. There's a lot of sand, but it, it's all natural, baby. <laughs> you know, should be Michigan's slogan, right? One Christmas, in another youth ministry story, so one Christmas we're talking about the nativity story, what happened when Jesus was born, and it was, it was all true, and it was great. And then I had a student raise their hand and try to convince the group uh, that the little drummer boy was there that day. Not true! <laughs> it's true-ish. Uh, my own kids do this all the time. My kids do this all the time. If you follow my wife on Facebook at all, uh, she puts a lot of, a lot of posts up there. One of, our kids are going to grow up and just hate us. Like we share all the dumb stuff that they say. And so my, they do this all the time. I, once long, a while ago now, I asked my son if he knew what the capital of Illinois is. And without missing a beat, he said, it's the eye. <laughs> it's true-ish. <laughs> That's a true story. So just last month, just last month, my, that same son tried to convince me that the capital of New York is New Jersey, which isn't even true-ish. That's just a lie. And 
a disappointment in terms of the public school system. Um, <laughs> so we, we just got back from a two-week vacation out on the East Coast, and we went to Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. And we stayed at the Washington Hyatt, and we were walking through Washington Square Park, and we happened upon a statue, and I turned to one of my sons, I turned both my sons, and I said, hey, anybody know who that is? And one of my sons said, hey, it's a famous general. True. True. So far, so good. I said, okay, which general is it? And he goes, Napoleon. I'm like, Washington, D.C., Washington Square Park. Who do you think it is? He's like, I don't know. I have no idea. Awesome. <laughs> Playing trivia in the car that same trip, one of my sons asked the other one about Ash Wednesday. Like, what is it? What is it, Ash Wednesday? What is, what is it the beginning of? What starts on Ash Wednesday? And, uh, and, my, and my other son said, oh, it's something important, which is true. That's true. Uh, I said, well, what is it? What's, what's so important about Ash Wednesday? And he said, it's the beginning of Doomsday. What? <laughs> True-ish, I guess. Uh, but, you know, I, I make fun, but my kids come by it honestly, because when I was a kid, I told everyone my dad was a wrestler, which is true. My dad wrestled all through high school. He was a really good wrestler. But then I tried to convince everyone that my dad was Hulk Hogan. And then a lot of kids believed me until we had, like, a parent come to school day and, like, wait a minute. Not Hulk Hogan. True-ish, right? So last Sunday, Steve talked about this system of beliefs that's true-ish. Uh, and the system of beliefs has been slowly creeping into our faith in this country, slowly creeping into Christianity in America. And, and the, the, the $100 term is moralistic therapeutic deism. Um, Christian Smith, and, and, and that's the researcher that, that coined this phrase, that came up with this term, um, explains it like this. He said, moralistic therapeutic deism is not a religion of repentance from sin, of keeping the Sabbath, of living as a servant of a sovereign dignity, of steadfastly saying your prayers, of faithfully observing high and holy days, of building character through suffering or basking in God's love and grace, of spending yourself in gratitude and love for the cause of social justice. Rather, what appears to be the actual dominant religion is centrally about feeling good happy, secure, at peace. It's about attaining subjective well-being, being able to resolve problems, and getting along with other people. Simply put, the idea is this. Being a Christian is about doing good things and being nice to other people so that I can feel good about myself and be happy in life. And God is there if I need him, but typically he prefers to just stay out of it. And the thing that makes this thinking so dangerous is that there's some truth to it. It's true-ish. God does want me to live a moral life. He does want me to be good to people and and be nice. Um, God does want me to feel good about myself and be happy. God is there when I need him. Those things are true, but they're not the whole truth. And, And they're not even the most important truth. They're, they're like side truths. 
And last week, Steve talked about moralism. And if you weren't here, I would encourage you to, to, to get on to jump on our website, nwcchurch.org. Listen to that message. It was a, a fantastic message. I'm not going to cover the same ground. Steve talked about moralism, about this idea of doing good is like the most important thing you can do in your faith. Um, listen to that message. It's great. I'm going to jump into the last part of this about therapeutic deism, about feeling good and God's there when you need him. And, and making faith therapeutic, making, equating faith with therapy leads to an elevated view of self. It, it, it elevates me to the most important position in faith. It makes faith about me instead of about God. Um, because it's therapy. It's about, it needs to make me feel good about myself. In a therapeutic faith, I'm the customer, and God's main job is to make sure I'm satisfied. God is like the cosmic customer service guy, right? Um, and when feeling good about myself is the goal of my faith, I start evaluating my worship experiences based on whether or not they give me the right feeling instead of whether they bring God the right glory. I judge sermons based on whether they give me tools, you know, three steps to, to love my wife better, whether they give me tools to improve myself rather than whether they, they challenge me to truly change and be more like Jesus and grow. I serve others so I can get credit for it and feel good about me rather than serving them because they're valued and loved by the God I serve. You see how the motivation, it's a slippery slope and it becomes more and more and more about me. Because it's about making me feel good. And here's the deal. Don't, I want to be real clear. There's nothing wrong with getting good feelings as we worship and as we serve. The Bible doesn't call us to be like these somber, sad people all the time and never feel good about ourselves. There's nothing wrong with getting a good feeling during worship. But, and I heard this this week, I can't take credit for this, 90% of the times in scripture where it talks about the Holy Spirit coming on a person in power, moving in a person's life in power, 90% of those references are not in reference to the feeling that you get when you're worshiping. 90% of the references in scripture about the Holy Spirit coming on a person in power have to do with them boldly standing up and speaking for Jesus. The Holy Spirit empowers us to boldness for his sake, not just to a good feeling. And so there's nothing wrong with getting the good feeling, but that's not the sum total of it. That's just not even the biggest part of it. That's just a small part. But when we start chasing those feelings so that they become the goal of our faith, we're no longer walking in truth. We've elevated like a side benefit of faith to the main thing, the main goal, and that's dangerous. Replacing faith with therapy takes a lot of forms. Uh, we, we see it in a lot of different ways in the church, but the heart of the problem is our insistence that faith needs to help me in some way in order to be useful. That if faith doesn't help me in some kind of practical way, like today, this afternoon, it like gives me, like it helps me make more money or whatever it is. If it doesn't help me in some practical way, then it's not useful. That's just wrong. Obviously, we, we want to help people. I mean, I'm not standing up here saying, like, we should just disregard everyone. We want to help people, uh, and so does God. God wants to help people, but helping people feel better about themselves is not God's primary mission. Helping people feel better about themselves is not God's primary mission. And some churches focus every resource they have on recovery from addiction or on advice about money or about fixing people's marriages or parenting classes, and none of those things is bad. 
Those things are all really good things. Jesus helped people all the time. Jesus helped people in, in, in marriages and in addictions. Jesus helped people with all of those things. But healing a person's disease or driving out their demons was not his main goal. Jesus didn't come just to make sure nobody was sick. He didn't come just to drive out other demons and like, peace out. Jesus had a loftier goal than this. We tend to be really practical, and our practicality bleeds into our faith. Um, we we want to know that our faith is helping us in very practical ways. Um, we, want, we want church to be like a hardware store. We stop in, we get a couple useful tools, and then we head home to fix all our broken stuff. And then next week, we're like, oh man, I didn't realize that was broken. I'm going to need to you know, head in and get some more tools so I can fix myself some more. Um, and, and I want you to see that hardware stores are very practical, but they don't do a very good job telling me what my life is about. If I'm concern, consumed with the practical concerns of just getting through this week, I just got to get through the week. I just got to survive. I got to get through my problems. Am I ever going to think, am I ever going to consider what's causing those problems? What's at the heart of my problems? Will I understand why am I here? Am I headed where I'm supposed to be? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Will I ever, just with a hardware store Christianity, will I ever explore my deepest needs and longings? I mean, like, I think I know what I need. I need, you know, I need this, I need this, I need more money. I need, you know, I need my kids to behave better. I need, like, but those, is that really what I need? Am I ever going to explore really what I need? And the answer is no, not with a hardware store. Because you're just looking to fix the thing that you can see that's right on the surface. And that's not what God's about. A therapeutic faith, it might help me cope with life each day. It, make, it might make me more comfortable, but it can't give me hope for the future. It can't explain why bad things happen to good people. It can't. It falls short over and over and over again. Because if God's job is to make me feel good and something bad happens to me, God, what the heck, man? Where were you? The goal of true faith, true faith, real faith, not true-ish faith, true faith, it's not feeling good about me. It's not the goal. The goal of true faith is spiritual maturity. Last week, Steve called it holiness. God's more interested in building my character than in helping me feel good about myself. God loves us and forgives us, but he also wants us to mature and grow. And true faith helps us find our joy in God rather than in ourselves. That's why James can urge us to consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you can be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And Paul can claim that we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Therapeutic faith has no room for suffering. How can a faith designed to help me feel good about myself include things that make me feel bad? When people with a therapeutic faith go through hard times, there's only two options. There's only two answers, only two explanations of what's going on. Either God is failing at his job of keeping them happy, or they're failing to do enough good things to earn God's favor. Only two, only two explanations. Only two, there's only two ways to explain suffering. God's failing or I am. 
either I have to do better, like Job's friends told him over and over. Something's wrong in your life. You've got to find that sin. You've got to fix it. You've got to be a better person. Or God has to do better. Those are the options. That's the, the only thing that can explain suffering. And I'm telling you that, that the truth in truth, there is a third option. That suffering is reality in the fallen world that we live in. And that God uses it to build our character, to grow our maturity, and to increase our trust and hope in him. See, it's easy for me to get comfortable in the world I live in. And when I'm comfortable, I'm tempted to lose my motivation to build God's kingdom and go back to building my own kingdom. But hard times, suffering, difficult circumstances, they make me uncomfortable. I'd venture to guess that they make you uncomfortable as well. And usually, hopefully, they drive me closer to God. And ultimately, that is for my good. Not only does this moralistic therapeutic deism misunderstand the goal of faith in saying that the goal is for me to feel good about me, it also misunderstands the role God plays in life. I just noticed that. I rhymed those. Misunderstands the goal, misunderstands the role. Cheese ball. So if therapy, <laughs> therapy leads to an elevated view of self, then deism leads to a diminished view of God. So this is, this is like the worst of both worlds. In this, in this substitute for faith, in this, in this, you know, imposter of Christianity, we're elevating ourselves and diminishing our God. In deism, God exists, true, so far so good, I guess, created the world, true, uh, and defined our general moral order, true, but he is not personally involved in what goes on here. Okay, now wait a minute. Because that's not the God I read about in Scripture. A God who's not personally involved? I, I don't know of that God. But in deism, most of the time, the God of, of this faith just keeps his distance. He's like a combination of a butler and a therapist. He's, he's always on call. He takes care of any problems that come up in my life. He, he helps me feel better about myself. Uh, but he doesn't become too personally involved in the process. Um, he, he, he jumps in. Uh, on those rare moments that I can't handle it, but most of the time he's just kind of watching and being like, yeah, good one. Oh, yeah, that's good. Oh, wait, I better get involved over there. And, uh, and, and I was thinking this week, I, a couple of weeks ago, I got a, I've, got, I've got a van. I've got two vans because um, that's who I am in life right now. It's kind of depressing. Um, so I've got this minivan, and, uh, and it's going through a weird problem, and, and I took it into the mechanic, and he couldn't replicate the problem. Um, and, and here's what's happening. I, I try to start it every once in a while. I try to start it and it won't start at all. Won't turn over, won't try, won't anything. And, and, uh, so one of these, one day this happened, um, and I was at, uh, Panera and I couldn't get it. Usually it'll start. Like I take the key out, I wait a bit, um, I mess with it and I'll get it to start. Well, this today wouldn't, this day it wouldn't start at all. And, uh, I'm a member of AAA because I'm paranoid and <laughs> I just judged you all, but me too. So, so I called AAA and uh, the guy showed up uh, uh, with his tow truck, but he already had a car on the truck. And so he was trying to help me get the car started so um, it would save time for both of us. And, uh, and he noticed that, that um, the, the, it wasn't in park. I mean, it was in park. The car wasn't just like moving down the road. But, but it wasn't showing that it was in park. Like it was showing that it was in reverse. And when it shows that it's in reverse, the car won't start because it's not in the right gear. Uh, and so we were trying to get it into park or neutral so we could get it to start. 
And uh, by the way, I'm telling this whole story because if any of you know what I'm supposed to do, I need you to talk to me later. Um, so, because <laughs> the mechanic's like, good luck. So, uh, so anyway, he, he, we couldn't get it started. And then after he left, wouldn't you know it, like 10 seconds after the guy left, I got it started. Um, so I should probably be doing that guy's job. And, um, so... <laughs> So anyway, all that to say that I think a lot of times we treat God like a triple A rep. Like I've got this emergency and I've tried everything and I can't really figure it out. I can't, I can't take care of this one on my own. So, you know, we get on, we get on the phone, um, the spiritual phone and we call God over. Um, and like God comes in and he's way more helpful than the triple A guy that was there that day for me. Um, but then he leaves. Then, then he's like, okay, cool, we all good? All right, I got other stuff to take care of. And we're happy that he leaves. Because think about it. I was happy the AAA guy came when I called him that day, but what if he never left? Like, how annoying, right? <laughs> like, what if, what if he was like, the AAA guy is like following me everywhere? And, and I mean, he, like telling me like what to order for lunch and like correct, correcting like my grammar. And like, you'd want to punch that guy. Like that, that would be awkward and frustrating and you wouldn't want that guy in your life. And so I think that's, I think a lot of times we, without like putting it into words like that, that's how we feel about God. Like, if God's there all the time, like correcting me and like making me feel bad about myself, like when I sin, I want to punch that guy. I want that guy. I, I only want God to come when I need him to come. I want him to stay away most of the time because I want to do what I want to do. Because it's about me feeling good. And when God's, when God's around all the time, it's hard for me to feel good when I do stupid stuff. I feel judged. <laughs> now, whether he's doing that or not, I feel that way. And, and so we, we, we treat God this way. We want to be there if we need him, but we want him to go away when we don't need him. And I mean, it's church. We're not supposed to say that, right? Like, no, I don't feel that way, preacher. I'm, I'm, yeah, you do. So God's there when you need him. <laughs> you can tell I just got back from CIY. <laughs> I just got back from like, these guys are communicating to students and they're like, I'm not scared. I'll say anything to those kids and I'm just going to get fired. So God's there when you need him. That's true. <laughs> assuming that you don't always need God is ish. God is there when you need him. That's true. That's not false. But assuming that you don't always need God, that's ish. That's the truest part of this. Like, yes, God's there when you need him, but God's there when you don't think you need him either. Like, God's always there. And, and Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. He, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he's talking about suffering, and, and he points out that God's not just watching from a distance. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from Paul. Find another word. From God. Sorry. We don't receive comfort from Paul. Heresy. From God. For, I'm glad it's on the screen. Good. I didn't write it wrong up there. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. God is there to comfort us all the time. Not just when we think we need it. Struggling, suffering, dying people have a God, don't, don't have a God who's, who's just watching from a distance. They have a God who has struggled and suffered and died with us and for us. He's hardly just watching from a distance. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. The most dangerous aspect of moralistic therapeutic deism, the most dangerous aspect of this parasite that's creeping into Christianity in this country is that it replaces the sovereignty of God with the sovereignty of me. It's a trade. I'm putting myself in God's place. The Bible has a word for that. It's idolatry. 
Finding happiness, security, comfort, and meaning in this life is not the goal of faith. Something's missing. All that to say, longest introduction you ever heard. All that to say, we're going to look at Matthew 19. There's Bibles in the pews. Um, I don't think the full text is going to be on the screen because it's a little longer. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 19. We're going to look at this story of this rich young guy that shows up with some questions for Jesus. And, and I think, I, I don't know about you, but I see myself a lot in this guy, and it scares me. I see our culture a lot in this guy, and it scares me. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 19. Uh, and this story, this particular story starts in verse 16. Matthew 19, 16. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Does that sound familiar? It's moralism. Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? (laughs) Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, (laughs) the young man said. What do I still lack? Huh. That's insightful. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Notice that this guy's question for Jesus focused on what he can get out of faith. What good thing must I do to gain eternal life? What do I have to do to get what I want? Moralistic therapeutic theism was alive even back then. What good thing do I do so that I can feel good, so I can have what I want? Essentially, this, young, this guy wants to know if he's done enough good things in life for God to give him what he wants, for God to give him his ticket to heaven, his, his Willy Wonka golden ticket. And Jesus challenges his perspective of moralism right from the beginning. It's, it makes me laugh because he shifts the focus to God, the only one who's good. He's like, what good thing should I do? And Jesus is like, only God's good. And that's, that's like, those are the annoying things. <laughs> He's kind of like, okay, okay, fine. So Jesus does this to him. He shifts this focus because doing good doesn't lead to eternal life. Like Jesus wants you to see this. Doing good things doesn't lead to eternal life. It doesn't matter how many. It's not about volume. Uh, it, doing good things doesn't lead to eternal life. But knowing the one who is good leads to eternal life. Knowing the good God, living in the relationship with a good God leads to eternal life. Doing good things might make you a good, nice person, but that's not what faith is. That's not what leads you to eternal life. Knowing the good God does. And, and, and obeying God's commandments is important. Jesus emphasizes its importance with this guy. It's an active expression of faith. 
when you have faith in a good God, you want to obey the, the things that he's laid out. It's not a burden to obey the rules. You, you, the Holy Spirit continues to, to change you and create in you a desire to live differently than you used to live. And, and you find yourself, I don't even want to do that anymore. I want to, to follow the good commands of a good God. Um, but there's an order to this. Like doing good things so you can check them off the list. That's not how this thing works. Um, and, and that's what he's looking for. He's looking for his checklist, you know, of good deeds. And so he asked Jesus, which commandment should I follow? And that makes me laugh even harder because I've been in youth ministry for 17 years. And I have, I've heard like 750 versions of this question from students. How far is too far? What can I do? Like, there's the line. I see that's the line. God says don't do this. But like, can I, can I get this close to the line? How about this close to the line? Can I get this close to the line? Like, and that's the question. Like, and that's the wrong question. Stop asking the question. Like, how close can I get to sin before it's sin? That's a stupid question. I'm sorry. Like, people say there's no stupid questions. There are. That's a stupid question. How close can I get to the line? Don't ask that question. Please stop it. Because that's moralism. That's the idea that as long as I stay on this side of the line and like do these good things and be better than most of the people around me, I'm good. And it's not true. Because Jesus says there's one who's good and it ain't you. God. Only God is good, he says, to this guy. And, and so then Jesus gives him a list. And you need to hear... Jesus isn't like picking five commandments and be like, the rest are rubbish. <laughs> he gives them a list that represents all of them. Uh, that, 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 you know, he, he's got this list of like, here's some that you do that concern other people. Here's some that concern yourself. And, and, and the list would, that he would have understood this. The guy would have understood that like this was like a summary, not picking out just a few. So Jesus is saying, you know, Follow the commands, follow the rules, do what you're supposed to do, live the way you're supposed to live. Um, that's, that's where you start. And, uh, and the young man insists that he's obeyed every one of them, the whole law. And I love that Jesus doesn't, like, Jesus has the heart of a youth leader in this moment because, like, I have students all the time that are like, oh yeah, I, I don't sin at all. <laughs> I just have to laugh. And, and cause I'm like, you sinned, like, uh, five minutes ago, but anyway, I'm not the Holy Spirit, so I'm not, I'm not there to, to convict them in that way. But it makes me laugh. This guy's like, oh, yeah, I got that. <laughs> and Jesus doesn't say, like, no, like, I know your life. And that's interesting. Because Jesus, there's, there's a more important conversation for Jesus to have. So he doesn't correct that part, because then the guy asks the best question he's asked so far. What do I still lack? That's a good question. That's the right question. See, the question isn't, how close can I get to the line? How close can I get to sin without it being sin? The question isn't, which of the commandments should I obey? Like, which ones are important and which ones are like, well, that one's, you know, we can just forget that one. Which parts of the Bible do I need to follow? Which parts are like, oh, well, that doesn't matter. And, but this is the good question. What do I still lack? What's missing? Because this guy, in his mind, has followed all these commands. He hasn't broken a one. And whether he's right or not, that's how he feels. But... Somehow, even though Jesus just said, like he, he answered his question, how do I get eternal life? Jesus says, follow the commandments. And the guy's like, I do that. Like, end of discussion, right? He walks away, chest puffed out. No, he says, what do I still lack? Because he knew. He knew that all the good he did in his life, something's still missing here. I got to be missing something. It can't just be this. It can't just be doing a bunch of good stuff. It can't just be this. And he's right. 
He gets to a point where he realizes, I'm missing something still. I'm still lacking. And, and, and Jesus just finished and tell him to keep the commandments, and he believes that he's kept them. So why would he believe that something's still missing? I think it's because he sensed this, that all the good deeds in the world can't get him to heaven. I think he felt deep down there has to be something more to faith than following rules. There has to be more than do good, feel good, and God is watching just in case you need him to, co- to come bail you out. And the good news... The good news is there is. There is more. This rich young man, he's on the right track. He realizes doing good is not good enough. There's still something missing. And in verse 21 of Matthew 19, Jesus agrees with him. He says, if you want to be perfect. And we hear that word and we just recoil from Jesus. And we start, we start with our excuses. I can't be perfect. That expectation's too high, Jesus. Nobody's perfect. You heard that one. I've said that one. But this word, perfect, really means complete. It means finished. It means mature. In, in Hebrews 6.1, the, the author uses the same word to encourage people to move past the elementary teachings about Jesus and into maturity. Same word. Jesus is saying, if you're ready to grow up from a life of just following rules into the life you're called to live, here's how. Like, if you're ready for some next level stuff, following rules, that's beginner stuff. If you're ready for some next level stuff, if you're ready for what faith is, for what this thing is about. If you want to be perfect, if you want to be complete, if you want to be whole, if you want to be mature, and then Jesus tells this guy, sell it all. Give it away. Come follow me. He exposes his heart. He gets down deep, and he challenges him. But, but notice, even that, even doing that, won't earn him a trip to heaven. See, Jesus isn't adding one more rule. In addition to those things, now this too. He's not adding one more rule. No matter how many good things this guy does, without a relationship with a good God, he will continue to lack. He will never be complete. And that's why the offer Jesus makes him isn't sell everything you have and give to the poor and then you'll have eternal life then you're good. Then you don't have to worry. It's sell everything, give it away, and follow me. See, Jesus is proposing a trade. Wealth for Jesus. He's proposing a trade to this guy. Earlier in this chapter, people, uh, the story right before this one, people are bringing their little children to Jesus, and Jesus in that story insisted that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, these little children. And, 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 Children, when, when you think about it, children are powerless to control their environment, right? They, 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 they're not hung up on the control issues that adults are hung up on because they just can't. They can't control their environment. They're defenseless against the evils in the world. That's why we, you know, we parents helicopter over them and won't let them do anything. And, uh, and they're totally reliant on a parent or a guardian, right? Completely reliant on them for their needs. 
Uh, the older they get, the less reliant they are. But the younger they are, the more they rely on you. They can't do anything for themselves. And, and that's the picture Jesus is giving us. This rich young ruler has turned to wealth as his source of identity and power and meaning. But he will continue to lack until he becomes like a child again. Not naive and immature and like throwing temper tantrums, but a child who relies on his father. He sensed that he still lacked something, and he's right. It's Jesus. And the sad thing, this is a sad story. The sad thing is he seems to realize Jesus is right. He doesn't ask any more questions. He doesn't offer any more arguments. He seems to realize Jesus is right here. But he chooses wealth anyway. He knew all along, all along from the beginning, that he was lacking something. It's what motivated all of his questions. And then Jesus offers him the thing he's lacking, the thing he's been seeking all along, and he rejects it and chooses himself. The offer Jesus made to this guy, it's the same one he makes to all of us that are, that are caught up in this struggle with a do-good, feel-good faith. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Jesus wants to be Lord. Not just over the universe in some kind of deistic way where he's just watching things. He wants to be Lord over your life in a personal way that may even feel intrusive at times. He's not just there when you need him. He's always there whether you like it or not. I found this quote this week. I loved this. Uh, it's from a Scottish minister and author. His name was George MacDonald. And he once wrote this. It was too long for me to put on the screen. So you'll have to listen. He says this. Imagine yourself as a house. God comes to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You know those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards... You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace because he intends to come and live in it himself. See, Jesus doesn't want to help you feel good about yourself. He wants to make you into a new creation. The good news is that you won't have to go through the changes alone. As the praise team comes back to the stage, they're going to lead us in a song to respond to God. And I want you to listen to these words from Isaiah. This is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. God does not promise to help you feel good about yourself if you do enough good in the world. God promises to make you into a new creation, mature and complete in him and ready to enter into eternal life. And he promises to be with you every step of the way. Not just when you think you need him. All the time.
because you need him all the time. If you'd like to, to take that next step toward a faith like that, you've been thinking through this as we've been preaching this series and saying, man, that sounds a little too close to home. That sounds like me. If you want to take a next step and start talking about what does it look like to follow Jesus like that, um, if you want to come forward and pray with someone this morning, we're going to have some people um, come up at the corners and I'm going to be down on the floor. We'd love to pray with you uh, as we stand and as we sing this song this morning.